Hello and welcome to the Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype right to the heart of the big issues of the day. This week, we're kicking off our coverage of the UBS Global Wealth Management Chief Investment Office Election Watch series. Now, you might recall from past editions of this programme dedicated to the theme during previous general elections in the US that the Election Watch reports take the investment temperature in the build-up to the big vote. An edition published earlier this month and authored by today's guest, Tom McLaughlin, Managing Director and Head of Fixed Income and Municipal Securities for UBS, is entitled Implications of a Potential Rematch. Without further ado then, let's hear from Tom McLaughlin. Tom, welcome back to the show. Great to speak with you as ever. First up, before we delve into the detail of this specific report, just remind us about the Election Watch series, how it works, a bit of the history and why it's an important focus and will remain so right through till November's polling day. Yeah, thanks, Tom. We've actually been publishing the Election Watch series reports for 12 years now. And we do it during presidential election years. And we also have a series of reports in the midterm elections as well. So this particular series in this election will include probably half a dozen reports. We've published two already. We have another one scheduled for publication in another three or four weeks. And we will probably keep it going right through October, right before the election. So we're looking forward to a very close election this year. It's obviously going to be very contentious. And we're looking forward to providing advice to some of our clients. Absolutely. And we'll talk about some of those contentious aspects in a minute. Let's start, though, with the report, Tom, by talking about, well, almost a single word. And I thought this was an interesting sort of jumping off point in this edition. Partisanship. People understand that elections are often necessarily partisan, but things have changed a little bit. Just set that scene for us. It seems to be we've gotten a bit more personal in terms of how registered voters on the Democratic and the Republican side are approaching the election. And in this report, we actually looked at a survey which was conducted by the Pew Research Center, which is a well-respected research organization in Washington, which showed that in 2016, 47% of Republicans, 35% of Democrats viewed registered members of the other party as, quote, immoral, unquote. When they conducted, that is the Pew Research Center, when they conducted a survey six years later, just a year and a half ago, the results were even more astonishing three quarters of Republicans and two thirds of Democrats held the view that the registered members of the other party were, quote, immoral, unquote. This is really quite astounding. And it it goes to the fact that we have a, a political environment in Washington where there's a certain degree of underlying animosity. And I, I attribute that to a couple of things. First of all, we have fewer governors in the system in terms of moderating the views of the respective parties. So what we're seeing is that the registered independents, those who are unaffiliated voters, have been the fastest growing segment of the American electorate. And the reason that's happening is you're seeing individuals who hold more moderate views, whether they be in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, gravitating to an unaffiliated status. And what happens is that it leaves possession in the party to those stalwarts who are basically either much more progressive or much more conservative. And when they arrive in Washington, having been elected primarily through the primary system rather than through the general election because of gerrymandering, which is the second point, they come in without necessarily having any governors in terms of moderating influences. So the gerrymander is a second point, as I mentioned, and that's just the ability of state governments to manipulate the boundaries of congressional districts so that they tend to basically favor one party or the other. 
And as a consequence, too many of our elections in, in the United States are now decided at the party primary level rather than through the general election. And as a consequence, again, the, the elected representatives hold very, very firm views, which are probably on the outer edges of the American electorate generally. Well, yeah, I mean, it's an absolutely fascinating backdrop. Let's look ahead then, Tom. And I think the report is a typically sort of perspicacious piece of analysis. It describes a number of scenarios, of course, that are possible across the presidential vote. And of course, both chambers of the House in November. But within all of those varied scenarios, there are some, I guess, that you and your colleagues see as more likely or, or perhaps less unlikely. Maybe tell us about some of those scenarios as you see it. It's more likely that the Republicans will uh, assume control of the Senate. And the reason for that is that, uh, as many of our listeners will know, the United States Senate, one third of the United States Senate is up for election every two years. It's a six year term. And therefore, in any given cycle, the individuals defending their seats may be in a particularly good position or a bad position. In this particular cycle, we actually have more Democrats defending seats than Republicans. And also those Republicans who are defending seats generally tend to be safe. That is, the states in which they represent tend to be more conservative. In this particular cycle, there are at least three Democratic senators who will face very difficult elections. And given the close margin that exists currently in the Senate, it seems more likely than not that one or two of the Democratic incumbents facing difficult races may lose, regardless of what happens at the presidential election. Obviously, a big win by one party or another will drive down ballot results, but it just seems more likely than not that the Senate will go Republican. What's interesting, however, this year is that the House of Representatives, which is very closely divided, might actually flip the other way. And there's a number of reasons for that. I talked about gerrymandering already. Some of the states, Alabama, Louisiana, New York, North Carolina, have all gone ahead and redistricted. That is, they've changed the boundaries of, of the representative elections. And as a consequence, it's likely to slightly favor the Democrats. And given how closely divided the House of Representatives is right now, it seems a reasonably good shot that the Democrats, regardless, again, what happens unless it's a blowout election, regardless of what happens, they have a chance to take the House. And this would be really unusual to see during a presidential election year, both chambers of Congress switching control in opposite directions. But I guess that's just another example of, of how unusual this particular election is. Well, yeah. And I, I guess for this campaign, more than many or almost any I can recall, Tom, it's important to remember that things can change and they can change fast. What's the old phrase, isn't it? A week's a long time in politics. There are some significant variables. If we look at some of the stuff that Donald Trump is contending with, of course, some of which are possibly unprecedented. But there are lots of other examples, even without these vicissitudes, where candidates have led or trailed significantly, but turned things around. It's, it's important to, bear, to remember that, isn't it? It is indeed. And it's it's sometimes lost in the popular media coverage of the current election cycle. But for the last 30 or 40 years, we can we can draw on at least half a dozen examples where the ultimate victor in the presidential election was running behind their opponent, really right up through the summer. And what we've suggested to clients is, although it's tempting to spend a lot of time looking at national polls, they tend to be of little utility value generally, but certainly very little utility value until the summer. Part of that is because most voters, particularly those who are unaffiliated, but generally most voters are not going to pay that much close attention to the race for president until the summer, 
conventions, the political conventions that occur in the summer. And as a consequence, you know, you got a lot of media coverage, you got a lot of discussion as to what's going to happen, what the policy is going to be in 2025 and 26. And we've suggested that everybody take a deep breath. We've got a long way to go yet. And whether or not one candidate in this particular election is ahead of the others today is probably not a really good indicator of what's going to happen beginning, say, midsummer through the election in November. Well, I was going to ask you a bit more about what investors, what clients ask you about. And presumably, they repeat some of those old truisms, or maybe they're a canard, you know, things like the market's like a GOP win. We have a sort of a version of that on this side of the pond as well about the Tories compared to Labour. But the data doesn't really show that, does it, Tom? And actually, well, there aren't really that many data sets anyway, if you think how many general elections there have been. But, you know, I guess it's tempting to do it. Is there any value in looking at different outcomes and saying this or that may mean A or B for, for portfolio performance. I guess, given what you just said, you should actively try not to do that. You should definitely try to avoid doing that. Political biases tend to be counterproductive when contemplating portfolio construction or a choice of investments. I mean, if your preferred candidate loses, you might be tempted to withdraw from the market, for example. But you might be withdrawing from the market at precisely the time when it is advisable to stay invested. And there's a lot of academic literature and research that has been conducted to suggest that individuals who basically react or overreact to a particular election result tend to underperform others who remain invested. So that's the first point. The second point in terms of you know, whether one party is, is better for markets than another, and you were absolutely spot on correct that the number of data points is simply not enough to become statistically significant. One thing to also consider is that when you think about, you know, what would happen, for example, if a Democrat is elected this November, or alternatively, if the Republican is elected this November, keep in mind that the inauguration doesn't occur until the subsequent year in January. So it seems a bit foolish to suggest that the market for the entire calendar year is going to basically be premised on an election where only six or seven weeks remain in the calendar year. And the loser, potentially, if it was the incumbent, would have been on the job for a full 12 months. So it, it is terribly tempting to do it, but we, we emphasize that it's probably not the way to go. Now, there is an instance where you've got some short-term market reactions, right, because somebody's elected, but it tends not to persist. Sooner or later, there's a reversion to the mean or a reversion to the trend that's already underway and would have happened in any case. Let's just very quickly talk politics, Tom, because I guess that is what is supposedly at stake when you have a general election. Any key policy issues in play? I know you touched upon this in the report, not in huge detail because it's a bit more speculative about the nature of the, the rivalry and how that might unfold, but just worth flagging a couple of key policy areas perhaps? Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. Let's take the energy market, for example, because we think that the two candidates are going to highlight, you know, different approaches you know, to energy policy. Uh, it's fair to assume that the Trump administration is going to forcefully advocate for reduction of expenditures related to the Inflation Reduction Act because that that particular act of Congress promotes energy transition. And you would you would expect a second President Trump administration to push very hard for that. The alternative, of course, is that President Biden will persist in trying to deliver funds in accordance with the Inflation Reduction Act in order to facilitate the green transition. But here's where it gets interesting. When you look at actually the performance of the energy market, the energy market actually has outperformed in the Biden administration than it did on the prior Trump administration. So this this is a perfectly good example of an administration which is basically advocating for an energy transition, and yet 
the fossil fuel industry has performed reasonably well during that same administration to push for a transition. And a lot of it has to do with the global environment. So energy was the best performing sector in the U.S. market in 2021 and 2022. Despite the fact that for that period of time, the Biden administration was pushing very hard for a passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and this energy transition. And a lot of it, again, is because what was going on in Ukraine, which basically increased demand for U.S. energy production. So the United States is the world's largest energy producer at this point, and it happened under a Democratic president, which I'm not suggesting is the Biden administration should get all the credit for. It's just actually an explanation of why sometimes exogenous factors and global factors have a bigger impact on individual sectors than does the the policies that are advocated by one particular presidential candidate versus another. But so that's energy. I think the other one that I've mentioned is industrials. Obviously, we're having some difficulty here in the States trying to strike a bipartisan compromise on defense funding and foreign aid. I think there'll be a compromise on that, but it's going to be very hardly fought by both parties. And how do you integrate border control, which is such a big, important issue on the southern border of the United States right now, with aid to Taiwan, Israel, and Ukraine? And it's proven elusive is the nicest way to put it. It's, it's been very contentious. I do think they'll probably come to an agreement here in the next 30 to 45 days. In both cases, I think the Biden administration will be more forthright in 2025 if it's elected in providing foreign aid. I think the Trump administration would be more likely to go ahead and withdraw to some degree from international engagement. Just finally, Tom, what's your kind of mood when you consider you know, the vote in November? I guess election season, it's kind of exciting, but it feels the stakes are pretty high and I, there'd be understandable trepidation, wouldn't there? If we think back to what happened in the aftermath of 2020, January 6th, things like that, extraordinary events that unfolded in, in the aftermath as it played out. How does it kind of feel where you're sat right now? It, it, you know, it depends on the age cohort you're talking about. I think there's a general degree of anxiety and a concern that we've got, you know, the same two candidates running, the two oldest candidates who have ever run for, for president. We're in a position right now where you've got President Trump is going to be 78 in June and President Biden is, is already past 80. So there's there's a combination of anxiety about what happens as we get closer to the election, as well as a general frustration that both candidates you know, are in a position in their lives where they've got a lot of years under their belt. For the younger generation, I've detected, not surprisingly, a degree of frustration. I've talked to a lot of younger colleagues, uh, as well as younger people generally, who are reasonably dissatisfied with the choice with which they're presented. So it's a combination of frustration and anxiety, I think is probably the best way to put it. But again, you know, a lot can change in the course of nine months, as as we discussed already. And I think when we actually have the nominations concluded, which again, you know, the the presidential candidates are not nominated and are not the candidates to run until the summer when the conventions affirm those choices that were made in the primary elections. And so once we get to that point in the summer, I, I think at that point, we'll we'll see whether or not the, the general tenor changes and other issues which are simmering right below the surface, uh, and these are mostly social issues, come to the fore. And when that happens, you may actually see a slight transformation to people who actively, much more actively engage in trying to push one candidate or the other based on their, their personal preferences regarding social policy. Tom McLaughlin, thanks so much for being with us. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance every week here on Monocle Radio. 
You can listen again and explore more at monocle.com. You can also follow the programme wherever you get your podcasts. And as ever, why not discover more and find out how UBS can help you at ubs.com. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.